2 Samuel chapter 13. For those of you reading ahead, you were anticipating this chapter. You were anticipating the rest of 2 Samuel. You can't start 2 Samuel and think that you're going to end in chapter 11 or even chapter 12. We've got to make our way through the book. We are a church that does expository preaching, and that means, generally speaking, we preach our way through books of the Bible. And that means you've got to deal with chapter 13 and 14 and 15. This is a particularly difficult chapter. Um, the storyline in it is hard to hear. It's hard to accept, but we absolutely must for a variety of reasons. I, I don't believe, my beloved, that we fully contemplate the consequences of our actions today and how they will impact the future. I don't believe David did. I really don't. I think that if David had any understanding of how his life was going to move for the duration of his time as king and his father and his family, if he had any idea how he was going to move forward after the sin of Bathsheba, the deception, and the killing of Uriah, I don't think he would have done what he did. Now, it's easy for us to say because hindsight is always twenty twenty, But merely because we can look back on our past actions and render a right decision does not mean, it does not absolve us from the consequences of going forward into the future. And that's what we see here taking place in the life of David. His sin is bearing the wicked, evil fruit that sin always bears. So we move we move from the great heights of chapter 12 where David takes David, God takes David, he restores him, he brings him Solomon, he, there's a re-coronation service at Rabbah, and everything looks like it's going to move in the right direction, and yet the remainder of this book is a fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. Nathan said in, in chapter 12, Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And so we go from this glorious restoration of God to real life. God, he, David was actually restored, and the consequences of his sins are real. And they made their way through Israel, and they made their way through the remainder of David's time on this earth. And so we, we need to hear, it's, it's going to be hard for us to hear, but we must for a couple of fundamental reasons. One, it's, it's in the Bible, and we don't want to skip hard passages. That would make us um, negligent of God's word. Um, we, the Bible also says that these things are written down, that we might not repeat the same mistakes. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians, that we don't do the same things that, that David was doing. So we want, to, we want to hear, we want to learn, and, and I think we need to see that God stayed with David. And so this should, be a very, this should be a great word of encouragement for us. In light of all that David did, God sees him through to the end, and, and we can hold that in Christ, that he who started a good work in you, in the midst of your sin, he says, I will make sure I bring you through to the end by his grace and by his power. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the outworkings of this sin in David's life and this most difficult chapter in chapter 13. And I want to look at it from the, the perspective of love. You probably got that from the songs and you probably got that from the readings. You say, well, how, how are you going to get love out of this? I want to show you first the, the false loves, the counterfeit loves. And they're, they're throughout this entire chapter. And then I want to end with the glorious true love, the agape love that God brings to us in Christ. So I want to look at four things this morning. One, the counterfeit love of eros. 
lust instead of love, lust instead of romantic love. Two, the counterfeit love of philia, a brotherly love. Here we see vengeance instead of brotherly love. Three, I want to look at the counterfeit love of storge, which is one you probably, you've probably heard of eros and philias, or philia, but not storge so much. These are all the Greek terms for it, um, where we see here David being a coward rather than actually loving as a parent or in the context of the family. And then we'll look at agape, which is the love above all loves. And we'll look at it in the context of this horrible, horrible chapter. And I say that loving the word of God. But you cannot read 2, Corinthians, I mean, 2 Samuel 13 and go, this, this leaves me just drained and empty and overwhelmed. That's the right response. It's the right response. So let's look at the counterfeit love of Eros first. Some primary characters in our storyline today. We have David, of course, the, the seated king who is now restored by God. Right, he's been restored. We have Amnon, who is David's oldest son. He was, the, he was the son born to Jezreel. He is the heir apparent to the throne. He's first in line to be next king. Really important for the storyline. We have Absalom. Absalom is David's third son. And he is born to his mother, Maacah. He's second in line. Kiliab, we don't know what happens to Kiliab. He's second son. No, we don't know what happens. But Absalom is second in line to the throne. And then we have the beautiful Tamar. And Tamar is Absalom's full brother and Abnon's half-brother. So she was born to Maacah as well. So these are the characters in our scene for today. And it's important that you keep them correct in your mind so we don't confuse who's doing what. Look at verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. The author writes, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. You say, well, where are you getting this idea of love? It starts off in verse 1, and I think it trails through the entire chapter. Not what love is, but what love is not. It says right from the beginning that he loved his half-sister in an unnatural way. He could love her with philia, a brotherly love. He could love her with storge, a familial love. But a half-brother cannot love his half-sister with eros. That's an unnatural love. It's an unbiblical love for a bloodline, sister, or brother. It's okay. Eros is a wonderful love given to us by God for a husband and a wife. Eros is to be expressed wonderfully in the context of a marriage. But outside of marriage, Eros is bad. Always. We're going to see that as well. True Eros, just like Philia and Storge and, of course, Agape, it's always, love always has the fundamental understanding that it's about other people. It's about the well-being of others. Love puts someone else, whether it's Eros or Philia or Storge and Agape, it puts someone else above you. It is self-giving in nature. It is sacrificial in nature. And essentially it says, I'm going to be concerned with that other person's highest good in the eyes of God. Their highest good. In other words, real love is fundamentally and always about other people. In your expression of it, it's always about other people. Now, we know immediately that, that Amnon does not love Tamar. And you say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 2. This is not love. This is lust. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill. He's sick, physically sick, because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So you say, well, this, this isn't even eros. This is, this is vile. 
This is lust. He, he wants to consume her physically, and that's it. He wants to consume her. He doesn't, he doesn't have a love for her to care for her and nurture her or raise her in the faith. He doesn't love her like a brother should for a sister, to watch out for a sister, a little sister. No, his desire, he is consumed with consuming. His desire is what he can do to her and not for her. And those prepositions are really important. He's not concerned about her, what he can do for her. It's what he can do to her to consume her. This story is reprehensible. And if you respond in any other way, then you're not hearing it correctly. It is vile. It should turn your stomach. That's the right response to it. Don't try not to be upset by it. All right? All right? All right. Are we all, are we all, are we all listening here this morning? All right? Do we, if we need to stand up and get the blood flowing, we can do that. If we're not okay, I want to see eyes. I want you, if you need to lean forward, lean forward. Listen. This is the word of God. Nothing you hear in the entire week is as good as hearing the word of God. Nothing. No television show, no radio program, no blog. This is the word of God. So listen to God speak to you. The narrative plays this out. There's, there's a sinister cousin by the name of Jonadab. And we hear about him. We'll talk about him later on, on Wednesday night. He comes to Amnon, seeing that he's physically ill, and he gives him this grand idea. Look at verse 5. Jonadab said to Amnon, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. You've all done that at some point in time, probably wanting to try to get out of school. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. The plan was to get her alone. It was to get her. The plan worked. David sends Tamar to Amnon and, and in so doing becomes part of the crime, indirectly part of the crime. And then we get to verse 11. When she brought the food near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. Lie with me. He wanted to rape her. And that is the right word. He wanted to commit incestual rape with her. She begs him not to, and she gives verse 12. Look at verse 12 and 13. She gives him three compelling reasons not to. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. And then it says, Do not do this outrageous thing. That word outrageous, better translated, wicked, godless. Don't do this thing. Pagans do these things. This doesn't happen amongst God's people. Compelling reason number one. Compelling reason number two. Look at verse 13. She said, as for me, where could I carry my shame? In other words, you do this, I'm ruined for the rest of my life. And then number three, she points to him. She goes, and as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous, same word, wicked fools in Israel. You're, you're, the, you're the heir to the throne. You do this and you're ruined. God is shamed, I'm ruined, you're ruined. And then she says, now therefore please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her, and he lay with her. He raped her. He raped his sister. Leviticus 18, Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 27 directly against God's law, incestual rape. 
so reprehensible. Amnon had no fear of God. He had no fear of the law of God. He was so consumed, and he was. He was consumed with consuming Tamar. He was so singularly focused that even though Tamar, in that horrible moment, gave him great reason to turn away from his sin, he did not listen, and he took her anyway. And then after he was finished with this godless, wicked, forbidden, outrageous act, I can't even put enough words onto it. Look at what happens. Look at verse 15. Amnon hated her with very great hatred. Greater, greater hatred than when he loved her, lusted for her before. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Let's be very clear. He hated her all along. When you're lusting for someone, you're hating them. What it makes clear here in verse 15 is that now he hates her even more. He said, why does he hate her more? Because this woman is created in the image of God. And now after this horrendous incestual rape, as she stands there, he sees himself clearly for the wicked, reprehensible man that he is. And all she does is bring that testimony down on him. His conscience is now so heavily weighted, he must cast her out. He has to get rid of her. He can't bear the thought of himself in her sight. And so he hates her even more. Look at verse 17. He called the young man who served him and he said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after. She begged him not to do this. She said, this is more grievous than the original sin. Don't do this. She's cast out. She's ruined. She's defiled. I know that we don't use that term in the modern culture today. I don't know why. She's defiled. Amnon has shamed his father. He's defiled his sister. He infuriates his brother Absalom. He violates the laws of God. He violates the trust of God. And poor Tamar rents her virgin robe, which she wore to serve him. She rents it because she's no longer a virgin. She's been raped. She pours ash upon her head. There's this great, it says she puts her hand on her head and there's this image of her running with such grief. So dark. Ugh. It was a vile, abhorrent, reprehensible day in the kingdom of Israel. This is the king's son. This is the heir to the throne. This is a princess. This is the king's daughter. This is not love. This is not love. And we have to read that first verse and, and hate that the author put that there, but he did it intentionally that we might hate someone would call this love. This is hatred. In, in its most pure, violent form. She would have been better off had he killed her. Because in her culture, she now would have to live as a motherless widow. The beautiful Tamar, the beautiful princess, now a motherless widow for the rest of her life. No husband, no children. And scorned wherever she went. Unfit for any man. Now, given our exposure, saints, to the sexual violence in our culture, just given our exposure to the constant movement of sex in our lives, so many people will hear this today. So many young people will hear this today. 
and they will say to themselves, it's, this is bad, this is a bad story, but it's not that bad. And it's only bad to you because you're older. You sound prudish. If what we read here is not utterly abhorrent to our hearts and minds, if we don't have a turning in our stomach of Amnon's ruining Tamar's life and ruining his own in the process, then we must say it's revealing a radical unholiness in our own hearts that we miss it because we're missing the mark ourselves. How many young men and women today have defiled themselves in the name of love when it's been lust and rape and hate? How many? If a man sleeps with a woman and they are not married, that woman belongs to God and that is rape. If a woman sleeps with a man and defiles the man, that man's purity belongs to God and it is rape. When you read this story, hate, rape should come to mind because that's what it is. It's simple and it's utterly reprehensible. You know, the exposure to us, it's everywhere. In our culture, in our time, we are bombarded with the message of sex and rape. We don't count it as such, but it's, it's somehow, it's dulled our spiritual wits. We're complacent on it. And, and if so, we are prone to the same sins. And you say, well, not me, pastor. Then go back and read chapter 11. We're prone to the same sins, and we're certainly prone to downplaying it. Well, it, it was just premarital sex. They loved each other. It's not that big of a deal. Hate and rape, that's what it is. Eros. Biblical eros, absent, husband and wife, absent the covenant of marriage, absent the self-giving love, the nurturing and the caring of someone else's physical, spiritual, emotional well-being, absent that, it is lust. And lust is always hateful. Jesus Christ said, and we know this well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You say, I know that, pastor. I want to add to it. When you lust after a woman, man, or man, women, when you lust after a man, you are committing adultery. But if that woman or that man has not given you consent, you are committing rape. That weight came upon me this week. And I thought, it's not just adultery, it's rape. When I lust after a woman, I'm raping her in my mind. It's a violent act. It's a violent act in our mind, just yet consummated in the flesh. But it's no less violent to God. It's no less hateful to God. And if we're God's people, it should be no less hateful to us. We must fight against that push by the culture where there are no boundaries. There are no sexual boundaries today. They're completely gone. It's just the opposite. Sex without boundaries is exalted. It's praised. It's encouraged. 
Lust masquerades itself like love. Hollywood sex is, is looked at as and defined as love and intimacy, which we know belongs between a husband and a wife. And it's just, it's just, it's just everywhere. It's permeated everything. Television, movies, music, theater, fashion, social media, nightclubs, dorm rooms, church youth groups. It's not love, it's hate. It's not just hate, it's rape. I don't want us coming away from this passage with any understanding than that. It is lust, it is hate, it is rape. And if you know Christ and you love Christ, you better hate it. Hate it with all your might. That means you say, I want to walk a holy life. I don't want to lust and I don't want to rape people. And teach that to others. It's not right for God's people. So first I pray we see this is counterfeit eros. It's a lie. It's a lie. It brought destruction to Tamar, and as we will see, it brings destruction to Amnon as well. So first we see counterfeit, counterfeit eros. I want to look at counterfeit philia. Look at verse, uh, verse 23. Verse 23, after two full years, two full years from Tamar's rape, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is in Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's son, all the king's sons. We're told in this text that Absalom hated Abnon for raping his sister. He hated him. That's made very clear. It doesn't even try to hide it. He hates him because of his action. He hates the fact that his father, David, did nothing to bring Abnon to justice. Nothing's done to resolve this wicked, wicked evil that took place in Israel. But rather than acting in haste, he waits two years. He plots and he schemes to get an opportunity to kill his half-brother. And so he has a sheep-shearing event. You say, well, what is that? I don't, I don't imagine any of you have ever been to a sheep-shearing event, but it was a time when the sheep were, it was time for them, for their woolly wool to be sheared, and so they would have a festival. It was like a party, and family and friends would gather and they would celebrate, and it was over a period of time. There was drinking, there was dancing. It was a party. Absalom waited two years for this opportunity to invite his brother Amnon. Enough time when people wouldn't be suspicious. Enough time had passed when everybody think, well, the issue's resolved. Absalom was upset at first, but he is no longer. It's okay for Amnon to come. Scheming, scheming, scheming. Do you notice that's playing its way out now? This is now defining the royal family, right? David schemed to kill Uriah. Amnon schemes to rape Tamar. Absalom schemes to kill Amnon. Scheming. Truly, David is reaping what he had sown in fashion. As I said from the beginning, I don't believe he could have possibly imagined. Now, Absalom's love this counterfeit fila is for his sister, right? He's doing this to, to justify what happened to his sister. He's protecting his sister. And so what does he do? He creates this, this means by which he can get his brother to a place where he can actually take his life. 
There's only a couple problems with this. Philia does not do this. Absalom's second in line to the throne. How convenient if he can get rid of Amnon. I mean, that's convenient. If Amnon's dead, then he's going to take the throne. But, but I believe, more importantly, he had a misunderstanding. He's thinking, I will, I will kill my brother for violating the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, but in so doing, I'm going to have to commit this, uh, for, go against the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. And what he's doing is he's not exercising justice, he's exercising vengeance. Vengeance is different than justice. We know this, right? Justice is exercised always by proper authority. If, 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 if justice is being exercised, but you don't have the authority to do that, then that's vengeance. And the Bible says that we're not supposed to exercise vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. Justice, parents in the home, churches over its members, the state over civil affairs, exercising justice rightly. In the time of Absalom, who was to exercise justice? The king. In this particular case, David. And in this particular case, a problem. Why? Because these were the king's children. This was the king's son, Amnon, who raped his daughter, Tamar. Certainly, the king is going to be biased and predisposed. In our current system, they would have changed the judge, and they would have they requested a, a change of venue also. Because there have been problems with a father judging his children. But it was not optional for David. He was the king and he was required out of his love for God and according to God's law to adjudicate this matter rightly. To submit to the ultimate king who is God. So David had a responsibility as a father in his house. And David had a responsibility as a king over the nation of Israel to do what was right. His office mandated it of him. In fact, we can say that his love for God mandated of him as well. And so his failure to do so, it left a burning coal in Absalom's belly. Justice was not served. And so Absalom says, I will take care of it myself. By David not acting, he left Amnon as an unconvicted felon. He left Tamar as a defiled, ruined woman, and he left Absalom as an angry vigilante. That's what David did to his family. He is unwittingly participating in the prophecy that Nathan said in verse 11 of chapter 12, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And David is committing much of this evil himself. So look what happens at the sheep shearing festival, verse 28. Once they've all gathered, Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Abnon's heart is merry with wine, he's having too much to drink, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. They killed him. Brother killing brother. This is the opposite of Philia. Philia is brotherly love. It's caring for and loving our brother, our sister, our neighbor, our friend. It's nurturing them and lifting them up and protecting them. Now, in in Absalom's mind, he was loving Tamar. He thinks he's loving Tamar by killing Amnon. But you hear that and he says, that's nonsense. And that is 
Because again, true love does not do this. It does not exercise vengeance. It nurtures and cares for and it protects. Now some of you might argue, David did not and therefore Absalom should have. If Absalom had the authority to, I would agree, but because he did not, it was vengeance. And you say, well, I understand it. I do too. I think most of us can identify with Absalom's anger and and hatred. I get that. I think most of us can say, "Uh, you know what? In a similar situation, I might do the same thing if he did that to my sister. It doesn't make it right, though. Philia does not violate God's law. Philia does not engage in vengeance. It leaves it to God and the authorities that God has put in place. As soon as you move, saints, listen. As soon as you move to that seat of vengeance, when you begin to exercise justice where that authority has not been given to you, as soon as you do that, you are no longer engaged in philia. You're no longer loving a brother or sister. It's more subtle for us. We don't, most of us don't go out and actually just kill someone physically, but we kill them in our minds. I mean, don't we? I mean, we look at people and we look at them differently. We treat them differently. We talk to them differently. Most of our vengeance comes through shunning, silence, indifference. It's still hatred. It means you're no longer walking the gospel line. Christ said, Matthew 5, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. If Absalom wanted to submit to the word of God, he'd have prayed for Amnon. He'd have prayed for God to exercise justice if he wanted it that badly. But a loving heart would say, God, forgive him of his sins and save him. That's a love born out of philia. That's a brotherly love, not vengeance. And you say, well, you know what? There are times, Pastor, when you just got to take it into your own hands. You know, just because I wasn't given the authority, I should take it. That's a lie. Every sin will one day be adjudicated, if not here, then before God. If you do not have the authority to exercise justice, do not exercise justice. It is vengeance. Leave it in the hands of God and leave it in the hands of those who God has appointed to exercise justice here on earth. And you say, but look, look at the injustice by those who are appointed to adjudicate. I can see that too. But no one gets away with anything in God's economy. What someone gets away with now will be adjudicated rightly before a holy God. And I guarantee you that will be a fair trial which can compel you to pray for those who will stand before a holy God. No such thing as justice not being served, ever. So we've seen lust disguised as eros. We've seen vengeance disguised as philia, counterfeit loves. But what about David? I mean, does he get off scot-free here? He's the head of the family. Let's take a look at the third counterfeit, storge. Storge is one we don't know as much. You know eros, you know philia. But storge, what is storge? Storge is a a familial love. It is a love that a parent has for a child. It is a love that a brother and sister have for one another. It is an affectionate, family-like love. Here's David, and he is the central figure in this story. He's our lead character. And so what is David doing here to make a mess of things? So many of the commentators talk about David's inordinate love, a a love that's not right for 
his children. Almost every single one brought this up. An inordinate love for his children that plagued David and the kingdom for the rest of his life. In other words, when we say an inordinate love, his supposed love for his children and concern for their well-being becomes an idol. Now, I want all parents and grandparents to listen closely to this. When we love our children or our grandchildren more than we love God, that is idolatry, and that will lead to horrible things, as we will see here. David's supposed love for his children superseded his love for God and the law of God. And what was the result here? The defilement of his daughter, the death of a son, and as we will see in the next couple weeks, the death of another son as a response to David doing nothing. Look at verse 21. You say, well, what was David's response when he heard about Tamar being raped? When King David, verse 21, heard of all these things, he was very angry. And that's it. He was very angry, and he did nothing. He's a king. It's his children. As a father and as a king, he had a responsibility to act on his anger to exercise justice, to bring discipline. But the, the, text, the text is intentionally vacant. The author, there's, no, there's nothing written that, about David going to Tamar and consoling her or comforting her or trying to bring some record. Nothing. There's nothing written that David went and had a single dialogue with Amnon about the rape. And all we get at the end of this chapter is how he longs for Absalom after Absalom kills his son. This is horrible parenting. This is horrible parenting. It's not love. They can, the commentators can call it inordinate love. This is hate too. David, in his mind, David's loving response, in his mind, I'm going to do nothing. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to try to keep the peace. Listen, saints. I'm going to try to keep the peace in the midst of sin. And there is no such thing. You cannot keep peace in the midst of of knowable, unrepentant sin. And if you try, whatever temporary peace you have, it will blow up. It brought bitterness into the family. It brought vengeance and it brought bloodshed. Justice left undone and unrecognized, it only aggravates the victims. We, I mean, how, how much have we seen now in the media with this movement between police forces and those who are being mistreated or not being mistreated, depending upon the news source? And what is the response to it? There's vengeance there. You say, where's the justice? I'm not arguing one side or the other. But if, if, we, do, if we ignore justice or, or we, we remain silent to it, It aggravates. It actually brings vigilante movements that cause greater injustice in the name of justice. We've seen that much lately. We're told in verse 37 that following the murder of Amnon, Absalom fled to his grandfather's house in Geshur, where he stayed for three years in exile. And then grievously we're told in verse 39, look, that David longed to go out to Absalom, not to discipline him, not to bring him back for justice. He just longed to be with him. This is the inordinate love. 
He did nothing to bring Abnon to justice. Abnon died. He does nothing to bring Absalom to justice. Absalom dies after engaging in a civil war. David fails entirely in exercising storge-like parental love for his children. It seemed loving in his eyes, I would imagine. Patient. I imagine others would say, look at how gracious the king is being with his own children. Look how gracious. Some would foolishly think that. These are all perversions of love. Anytime God's love is perverted, violence comes in, and the end is the same. It's destruction. All right, parents and grandparents, listen closely. And I pray that you hear this in light of this horrific teaching on Storge. By shielding your children from the results of their sin, by hiding it or moving it or covering it, no discipline, no justice, no real grace after repentance. You do that. You avoid the issues. Listen, I'm talking to some of you directly, and you know that. You avoid the issues. You are saying, bring vengeance, bring lust, bring murder, bring rape into my family. That's the love you're exercising to your children and your grandchildren. And I don't care how old your children are. If you're a father and a mother, you're a father and a mother until the the day that you die or your children go to be with the Lord. I will be a father to my sons until I go home. And that means if I'm 90 and they're 60 and they're engaged in a life that is not honoring to God, I will be at their door. They'll be in a headlock for as long as I can keep them in a headlock. And I will bring the word of God to bear on their life. We can't say, well, they were older men. Absalom was old. David had a responsibility to father his children. He failed here. You can't just avoid the issues. What is this dialogue like? Like, they're they're at the dinner table. What does this dialogue look like? David says to Amnon, So, son, how was your day? Well, father, I deceived you, and I raped my sister. That's nice, son. What about you, Absalom? How was your day? Well, father, I deceived you as well by plotting to take Abnon's life at Baal Hazor, and I did. That's nice, son. What about you, my beautiful Tamar? What about you? How was your day? Well, father, I did as you said. I took the food to Amnon, and then he raped me and defiled me, and now my life is ruined. That's nice, daughter. This is crazy. And yet, as crazy as this is, this is contemporary American parenting. It's not nice, dear. It isn't love. It is hatred, and it is destructive. How many parents, how many grandparents, how many churches need to hear this real love? Not a love of avoidance, not a love of blinders, but real love that has boundaries of truth and righteousness around it. Real love. Real eros in a a marriage. Real philia between brothers and sisters. Real storge from parents to children. Maybe we're unaware of it. Maybe. I don't know. 
Maybe we don't get it. I believe that most of us just refuse to acknowledge it. That this type of counterfeit love in the marriage, in the home, in the church, the consequences are darkness. It's destruction of relationships. It possibly is the death of eternal souls. Parents, you set a bad example for your children, especially in how to love God and other people, and they will bear bad fruit. You do not model for your children and teach your children and train your children how to love God and love one another. They will bear bad fruit. What kind of fruit? Lust, rape, vengeance, murder. You say, well, not my children. They would never do that. Time bears that out. This is the worst part of the story. There's no indication in the text that David's reprobate sons believed or repented. And you know what that means? That they are reaping their bad fruit for an eternity in hell. And that's it. It's the worst part of the story. Utterly lost. Anytime parents, grandparents, members of the church, we embrace a love that is not taught to by God in Scripture, it is a counterfeit love, and that counterfeit love is hate. Call it what you want. It's hate. Any perversion of God's love is hate. I know you know this. That means if we embrace it, then we're working against God, we're working against his kingdom, and we're working against the principles by which he called us to love one another, how we're to relate to one another. So in David's life, And in his children's life, there was lots of love. But it was all counterfeit. It wasn't real love. It wasn't right love. And most of it, if not all of it, led to destruction. So the question for us as we get to our last point is how do sinners saved by grace, how do we not end up in the same trap? Because most of us will say, well, I don't love like that. I love rightly. My eros is right. My philia is right. My storge as a parent is right, pastor. Are you sure? I think so. We got to know. We got to know we're loving people as God has called and commanded us to love. Most of us, I, I imagine, I know I could admit to you, that most of my love for most of my life has been a counterfeit. Most of my love for most of my life with my wife, my eros, was not biblical. It was counterfeit. It was more about me. Most of my love for my brothers, my philia, was more about me. And truth be told, most of my parenting, my storge love, was more about me than my children. Contaminated, counterfeit. How do, we, how do we get out of this mess? How do we guard our hearts that we don't step into the same trap? Is there any way? I think there is. Look at the last point. I think there's another love we've got to add to the first three. Neither the king nor his sons exhibited that love in chapter 13. What we saw in their lives were self-centered, self-serving, inward-turned, counterfeit loves that was all about them and not about anybody else. 
Amnon was not thinking about Tamar when he raped her. Absalom was not thinking about Amnon when he killed him. And David wasn't thinking about anybody when he was just trying to make peace in the midst of the sin. None of that's love. You say, well, I don't want that to be the story of my life. I don't want it to be the story of your life. I don't want it to be the story of my life and certainly not the life of our church. The pattern here that we see is consistent. When God's love moves outside of God's boundaries, when God's love goes against the love that he has called and equipped us to, it is violent. It is a violation of God's laws, and therefore it brings violence into his creation. We cannot move against God's laws and expect us not to have violence. You say, well, that's graphically illustrated here. The violence here was vengeance and rape and murder. Agreed. The love between a husband and a wife, the love between a brother and a brother, or a brother and a sister, or a sister and a sister, the love between parents and children, or, or those in that family affection of storge, those all have their right boundaries according to Scripture. They're all clearly defined. The Bible tells me how to love my wife. The Bible tells me how to love you as my brother or sister in Christ. The Bible tells me how to love my children. It's all here in the book. So if I don't know this, it's, it's on me. If you don't know it, it's on you. How can we break this cycle? Is it breakable at all? How can our self-centered eros, our self-centered philia, and our self-centered storge be transformed? Because they're all, the real ones are beautiful. So how can they be changed from the perversion to the real thing? How? We need a greater love. We got to have a more powerful love than Eros, Philia, and Storge put together. We have to have a love that covers all the love and that supersedes those loves and then comes underneath those loves and it undergirds them. You say, well, what love is that? It's a term in the Greek, it's called agape. Now, that term has been so abused, I, I want to I sit on it a bit. You say, oh, I know agape, that's a, that's a discipleship group. Or I know agape, that means we eat together. Agape is a Greek word for love that was actually fully developed in the New Testament. It actually gains its meaning from the use of that word in the New Testament. And it fundamentally is a a revealed love, a type of love that God has for mankind that God exercises in a covenant relationship as a promise to those he's going to redeem. It is a love based upon a decision, not a feeling. You say, oh, this sounds very different already. It is. It's a choice to love. It is a will to love for the betterment of the other person at the expense of self. And this love that God has for fallen man through Christ he then gives to his children that we might then love God in agape as well and love one another in this selfless way C.S. Lewis wrote a great book if you have never read it I encourage you to called The Four Loves and he talks about eros, philia, storge and agape and he describes agape as the highest level of love known to man The other three are biblical, but he goes, you want to talk about the love above all loves? It's agape love. 
It is a radically other-centered, it's about you at my expense kind of love. Selfless, passionate, unconditionally committed to the well-being of someone else at your own expense. I don't know about this love. Let's go back and talk about Eros a little more. Philia, what what is this? Unconditionally committed to the well-being of others at my own expense? Yes. A great word that defines it best, but it kind of misses the mark in our cultural context, is charity. You think of charity, and you think of giving to the poor. The word charity best describes agape. It's about giving rather than getting. It's about serving rather than being served. It's about blessing others rather than being blessed. Okay? That's, our, that's the groundwork of agape. Take agape now and put it back into our storyline. This type of willful, other-centered love, if Amnon had it, when he had started having those lustful thoughts for Tamar, he never would have raped her. The agape would have superseded the lust. If Absalom had an agape love for his sister and his brother, and his father. It would have transformed his philia. He wouldn't have said, vengeance is mine. He'd have said, i got to pray for my brother because he's going to stand before God and it's going to be a horrible day for him. If David, if David had an agape love for his children instead of this self-centered, it's all about me, storge love, it would have replaced whatever inordinate love he had for his children with an ordinate love for God. And when I say that, ordinate love for God, you can't love God too much. You say, I got an inordinate love for God. I say, well, keep working on that. You can't love God too much. But if you, got, if you love God as you ought, then agape will envelop you, and David then would be able to love his children more in righteousness. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He said, It is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallest, it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the many, that constitutes the inordinacy. In other words, you see the problem? Absalom. Amnon and David were all suffering from the same problem. Absalom and Amnon didn't love Tamar too much. They loved God too little. David didn't love his children too much. He loved God too little. And the truth be told for us, my beloved, all the inordinate loves, all the perverted loves we exercise at the root of the problem is that we love God too little. We don't love God enough. We don't love with all our mind, our heart, our soul, and our strength as we read this morning. That's why that was the verse of confession. Whenever our love becomes perverted like it did in David's life, we can rightly say that the heart of the problem, as Lewis said, it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for others. That means young men, young women, husbands and wives, when you inordinately love one another, when you lust after one another, it's not your great love for that other person. It's your smallness and your love for God. 
It means that we can say as a church, members of the body of Christ, when we neglect to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in willful, unrepentant sin, when we neglect to come alongside them and teach them and rebuke them and admonish them, and if necessary, cast them out of the church, when we do that, you say, I can't do that. I love that person too much. That's a lie. It means you love God too little. When a church says, we don't exercise church discipline, I say, where did all the sinners go? Did they leave your church? No, we love them more. Parents, when you refuse to train and discipline your children in the way of righteousness from a very early age, from a very, very early age, you refuse to do that because in your heart you say to yourself, I love them too much. I don't want to. I don't want to spank them because it makes them upset. It's supposed to. It's a spanking. And when you say, I love them too much to do that, that's a lie. It means you love God too little. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. And if you love your children, you will rightly discipline your children. Members of the body of Christ, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, we will as a church rightly discipline our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love God much, if we love him little, we will hate one another. And that's the other side of it. We love God little, we hate one another. I don't want to hate you. I don't want you hating me. I don't want us hating one another. I don't want parents hating their children. I want parents loving their children. This is what God calls us to. Now, simply seeing the difference between these counterfeit loves, it's, you know it's not good enough. This is not a theology problem. You can't go, okay, agape's better than perverted eros. I got that. This is not an intellectual issue. I mean, fundamentally, we know we need more than theology because if you're like me, you know your heart is so inward-turned and so self-centered that you can't leave here today and go, all right, um, you know, it's counterfeit eros in my life for my wife, therefore I will love her more, 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 and try. You can't say, you know what, I've exercised a counterfeit philia for my brothers. I must love them more, love them more, more, more. It doesn't work like that. You need a power to come on you, to overwhelm you. You need a new love that transforms all the other loves. God knows that. And so what did he do? Out of his great agape love for you, he sent Christ You say, well, who is Christ? Christ is love. He is the lover of your soul. He is perfect love. He was love incarnate. Love becomes a man. It's not an idea. A man. Perfect love. And he came not only to reveal it to us, but he came to express it. And he came to give it so that you can have it too. Have it from God, have it to God, and have it for one another. Imagine, imagine a church overwhelmed by agape love. You say, well, what drives my life? My love for God. How does that manifest itself? My love for one another. Well, that's a place everyone would want to be. That's what Christ brings. He says, you don't have to do the perversion. You don't have to engage in the counterfeits. Christ is love. He brings real love to us. Through his life, 
his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He says, I am perfect love. I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to press it upon you. Unlike Amnon with his sister, Christ did not come to consume you. He came to fill you. He didn't come to devour you. He didn't come to to make you an object. He came to dwell with you and to pour out a love on you that, that goes beyond our understanding, but we must try to understand it. And he does this by... He draws us in through the cross, doesn't he? He says, I'm, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm, I'm going to be devoured like Tamar was devoured for you so that you will see the incredible love that I have for you. I'm going to take the full wrath of God upon me for you. I'm going to be swallowed up. In it. That's agape, right? He's sacrificing everything that we might have everything. Pure agape on the cross. So glorious he woos us in. You can't gaze upon a crucified Christ. You can't, you can't contemplate that he was devoured. You deserved that. I deserved it. He received the wrath of God, and then he pours out his love on you. Why? Because you deserve it? Absolutely not, because he wants to give it to you freely. Get swallowed up in that for a while. Be changed by that kind of love. That is a love that is, a love that is not known here other than in Christ. Nothing comes close to it. In fact, I would say there's such a categorical difference. We can't even compare that kind of love with eros, philia, or storge. Wholly different. Unlike Absalom with Amnon, Christ brings perfect love, not exercising vengeance against you, brother, not exercising justice against you, sister. Christ brings true philia, he's the true brother. And most striking of all, unlike David with his children, God did not spare Christ. I mean, there's, there's a, a bitter irony in this. David's sons engaged in rape, deception, and murder, and he did not punish them. Jesus Christ came, and he lived a perfectly sinless life Perfect love, perfect obedience with the Father, and God the Father decimated him. For you and for me. So he can love us like this. It's this love, saints, revealed in Christ upon the cross. You just get a taste of it. I mean, just, just have it pass by your eyes for a moment. It's that powerful. It will change you. It will transform you rightly. It will teach you how to love rightly. It has the power to overcome our inward-turned, most radically self-centered hearts. It has that power. The Savior's great love given to us by God's grace through faith in him, by trusting in him. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll take that mess of stone that's residing in your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out the counterfeit eros and the counterfeit philia and the counterfeit storge. I'm going to take out all that self-centered junk 
that moves you and motivates you. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires. You say, what's that new desire, God? He said, it's an agape love for me, and it's agape love for one another. And then he says, now go love one another. God does this in Christ. So our, our love should be overflowing. This time of worship should be overflowing for God, and it should manifest itself in an overflowing, agape, selfless, other-centered love for one another, for you, for me, for the lost, for the enemy. It should just move out of this place. It should burst these windows and go into our homes and into our neighborhoods and back to work. Take it with you tomorrow. Take the agape love with you tomorrow with your coworker and love that person as God does. Jesus gave himself away completely to redeem you. And there's, there's a paradoxical nature to this agape. I think it's one of the reasons we don't like it. The same holds true for us. You see, what is the application of this teaching? It's real simple. Agape calls and compels us to give ourselves away. You say, give what away? My time? Yes. My money? Yes. My energies? Yes. Everything? Yes. That's true agape. Agape love is you, brother and sister, coming into the presence of God. You give your whole life to God as a servant to man. Your whole life in the hands of God to serve in his kingdom, mankind. And when you do that, you say that, Now I'm really struggling with this. When you do that, when you die to yourself, when we die to our selfish, self-centered, it's all about me life, when we come to Christ and we die, we live. You want to find life? You say, I want real life. I want to know real life and real love now. I'm tired of the mediocrity. I'm tired of the counterfeits. I want to know the real thing now. Then die. Lose your life. Give it up to Christ entirely. Stop holding on to whatever you're holding on to. And you're all holding on to something, probably many somethings. Stop it. Surrender it to Christ. Say, I'm yours entirely. Did Jesus not say to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Agape lovers is what we're supposed to be. I'm pretty far from it, saints. I don't know about you, a long way to go to be an agape lover. But I want to find my life, and if I'm going to find my life, I have to lose it completely in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'd like to go for the rest of my time here. Some of you have more maybe, and some of you maybe have less, but for the time that we have remaining, wouldn't it be a glorious thing to listen to Christ, to die to ourselves, that we might live, not just exist, not just persist, but actually live a life worthy of the calling. When people see you, they say, what is this love? And you say, agape, and they say, what is that? And you share the agape love of God. To be so changed and so different 
so out of place in this unloving place because of your great love for God. It has that power to change you. The perfect lover does. If the entire time I've been talking about this sacrificial love, it sounded more like Greek or Hebrew to you, then you don't know Christ. See, I don't have any idea about this love. Then you don't know Christ. So listen to me closely. If you do not know this love in any capacity, if you don't know what it means to sacrifice for the sake of God, to the glory of Christ, then you need to flee to the cross this morning. You need to run to Christ this morning and ask God to forgive you for your inward-turned, self-centered life, for your whole life, and ask Him to pour out the love of Christ on you. You say, I know this teaching. But when you teach, I I feel like a hypocrite. Then do as I did. You got to run the cross too. And you got to confess your hypocrisy. And you got to say to God, God, you want to be bold with God? Demand this. Say, God, give me this love of Christ. Swallow me up in it. My heart still feels like that heart of stone. I want that heart of flesh. I want it all. Give me that love, Lord. James said, we do not have because we do not ask. If you do not have this love, then ask God for it. Say, give it to me. I want to love you like this, Lord. I want to love others like this. And you know what? He will. He will pour out the love of Christ on you in such a way that you then can live a life worthy of the calling. You can in Christ. He will make you an agape lover. He'll make you a sacrificial lover. And you'll love, husbands, you'll love your wives with right eros and wives their husbands. Brothers and sisters, you will love one another with a right philia, a right brotherly love. Parents and grandparents and all members of families, you'll love each other with a right storge, a biblical storge. Why? Because you have the agape love of Christ dwelling in you. That's where we want to be. That's where we need to be. Ask God that he might do this great work in us. Not for your glory, not for our glory, but for his glory. And in that sincere prayer, you're already on the right path because you're asking for something for someone else. In this particular case, the glory of God. No greater prayer than that. Can I get an amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the destruction these counterfeit loves brought. so much pain, so much suffering, ruined lives, ruined families, a ruined nation, all in the name of love, but it was not.
Heavenly Father, we do not want to love like this. We don't want to go through our lives expressing counterfeit loves that only hurt people and hurt ourselves. We desire that love from on high. We know that we cannot conjure it up ourselves. It must come from you as a gift in Christ. And so we ask, as your servants, to bless us with that today. Bless this church with it today. Bless your real church, wherever they gather today throughout the world with this type of agape love. Give it to us that we might love you first and then one another in a most pleasing manner so that Christ, your son, the perfect lover, is magnified and glorified in our lives. We desire this, Lord, for your glory. You are worthy of it all. We ask that you would change our hearts, O Lord. Make us ever true. Change our hearts that we may be like you. In Christ's name.